The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. He was a Jewish boy born in a simple family in a small town. Later on in his life, he would move to a big city, and the events that took place there would have a major impact on the world. And the person I'm talking about, of course, is none other than Bert Bacharach. (laughs) Bert Freeman Bacharach. He's a popular songwriter, producer, and artist. You may or may not know him, but I'm almost certain that you've heard uh, some of his songs. I like to call them commercial and movie songs. They're always in commercials and movies. So I'm going to do something now that we don't usually do, okay? So I'm going to sing some of these songs, and I want you to try and complete them because I'm sure you've heard them before, okay? Why do birds suddenly appear? Yes. Every time, yeah, you are near, Uh uh-huh, just like me, they long to be close to you. Yes, that's a Burt Bacharach song. Another one is the raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah, we all know that one. But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon be turning red. Yes, that's a Burt Bacharach song as well. And another one. I mean, you may not know this one. Hopefully you do. Um, There is always something there to remind me. Yeah, at the end you caught that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there is always something there to remind me. Now, although Burt Bacharach and his writing partner, Hal David, wrote this about a relationship going sour, that message, that statement, there is always something there to remind me is very relevant for us uh, today as we approach our text, 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 to 19. Now, the text opens up with the words, remind them of these things. So first of all, who is saying this and who are they talking to? If you've been around for the last uh, few weeks, you will know that this is Paul writing a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. Secondly, who is them They are the church at Ephesus, just like we are the church in Massapequa or Bethlehem Assembly of God is the church in Valley Stream or North Shore Baptist is the church in Bayside or Brooklyn Tabernacle is the church in Brooklyn. So all those churches are represented here, just in case not random. All those people are, you know, here. Um, They are a church made up of people just like you and me. So don't lose sight of that as we walk through this passage this morning. Thirdly and lastly, what are these things? These things are spoken of in the rest of the passage, and that will be where we spend the most of our time uh, today. So now that we put a little bit of meat on the bones of all of this, we understand that remind them of these things reads more like, I, Paul, am telling you, Timothy, my son in the faith, to remind the church at Ephesus 
made up of people just like the ones in this church, all the things that I'm about to tell you. Amen. Now, in order to remind someone of something, it's understood that the subject in question is something that you would have to talk about before. Right. So, for example, Charmaine, right, sent me a text a couple of weeks ago to remind me to pick up something from Target. Right. Now, we had just spoken about this the night before, and she didn't know that I put a reminder in my phone for my own self, but she still felt the need to remind me anyway. Right. And she does this often. Right. (laughs) But lovingly, of course. Right. I love you, babe. Um, I think I just explained the life of almost you know every married man here. By the way. But but seriously, I do forget from time to time. So those reminders really come in handy. And most of Paul's letters include phrases like remind them or remember to or don't forget to. And I think it's because he knew that his audience, the the members of the first century church there in Ephesus, were quick to forget, just like we're quick to forget about Christ. His work on the cross and the fact that every area of our lives is to be devoted to him. We meet every Sunday, not only because Jesus rose on that day and the first century church started meeting that day as a tradition to honor that. But also because it helps us to remind one another of Christ regularly, week to week. Today, we partook of the Lord's Supper. And as Caleb said, um, this is my body, which is, uh, I'm sorry, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We have men's study, women's study, Bible studies, community groups, stay and pray, all church fellowship, evangelism, preaching, all to remind us of who we are and whose we are and to keep our hearts set on Christ. It is by the grace and favor of God that there is always something there to remind us of him. So Pastor Caleb has been walking us through the first chapter and a half of 2 Timothy. And in his first sermon, he noted that Paul is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. Now, I, I looked up uh, what a prison in Rome might look like. And it's a, it's, a, it's a very dark and it looks cold and dingy and it's built of large stone blocks and Usually there was a circular opening in the in the very low ceiling for light to come in, for sunlight and moonlight to come in, and another opening in the ground for the prisoners to relieve themselves. And it was an awful place, and it was there that Paul would write this, his last, his final letter. And Paul would be executed sometime after this, and and he wrote this letter knowing that his death was just around the corner. So with all of these things in mind, let's now read the entire passage. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14 to 19 reads, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, 
Saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Amen. In verse 14, Paul says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So charge them before God. So in the Ephesian church, it could have been easy for a member to say, Pastor Tim. That's Timothy, right? Pastor Tim. This is just what you're saying. These are, these are your thoughts. These are your ideas. And if they want to take it a step, a step further, they could say, you know what? These aren't even your thoughts. You're just re- writing, reading something that Paul wrote to you. But Paul says here, charge them before God to say that they don't have to answer to you, Timothy. They don't even have to answer to me. And I helped to plant that church. They have to answer to God. These are God's words. These are God's thoughts. This is God's will. Look at 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not one word of scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation is a completely independent human thought. Every jot and tittle comes from God. And Paul says again in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that man of God, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if I had uh, points in this, this would be my first, my second major point, really. Biblical truth, whether shared verbatim or paraphrased, is God's truth to us, and we are called to submit to it. Let me say that again. Biblical truth, whether shared verbatim or paraphrased, is God's truth to us, and we are called to submit to it. It goes on to say in verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. And later on in verse 16, avoid a reverent babble. Don't quarrel about words. Avoid a reverent babble. What does that mean exactly? It means empty discussion, talking in circles, discussion of vain and useless matters. In other translations, worldly, heathenish, or wicked are used in place of irreverent. Back in 1 Timothy 1, Paul, warning Timothy of this before, defines it like this. He says, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So if we put all those thoughts together, what we end up with is this. Avoid and oppose all talk that will distract you or others from Christ and the gospel. Have you ever wondered how the dinosaurs fit on the ark? Who exactly were the Nephilim? Have you ever looked into the book of Enoch? I wonder how Jesus was as a toddler. Did he have tantrums? Would that be considered sinful? And just like that, right? You can see how something small and seemingly insignificant and, and curious can snowball into something much, much more serious. Although there's nothing wrong with a little curiosity about these kinds of things, Paul is saying here that, there, that it is dangerously wrong to dwell 
on questions and topics like these because it breeds speculation and doubt, which can lead us away from the cross and the plain and simple yet profound truth of the gospel. Now, verse 15 is sandwiched in between these two charges to not call about words and to avoid a reverent babble as a contrasting uh, statement or thought. And verse 15 reads, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, there's a lot here, but let's break down uh, the first half a little bit and see how this contrasts with the verses before and after it about quarreling uh, uh, with words and avoiding reverent babble. First of all, do your best is also uh, defined as to be diligent or to strive. Right? Usually people are diligent and strive or people are diligent and strive in things they find joy or contentment in. Right. When I was in high school, I wanted to be the best discus thrower I could be. Right. So I was a diligent athlete. I would practice by myself in addition to the regular two hour practice. I loved it. So I did my best and I pursued it diligently. So if the diligent are content, then those who are quarreling about words and those who are participating in a reverent babble are discontent. But not discontent just because of just in anything. They're discontent in Christ. If you are truly content in the Lord, then there is no desire for you to entertain worldly things, worldly discussions, false doctrine, error. If you are truly content in your marriage, then there is no desire for you to entertain improper thoughts of a person who's not your spouse. Those who quarrel about useless and wicked things are discontent in Christ. Secondly, Paul categorizes this person who is being diligent and striving as a worker. This is the same word Jesus used when he said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. An active worker should never be at rest. She should be fulfilling the requirements of her position for as long as she's on the clock. If you are a Christian, yes, you are a friend of God. Yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you've been adopted by God. But all of these things describe your relationship, not your responsibility. Our responsibility as believers is that we are workers. We are laborers. We labor in the field. We labor in sowing God's word. We labor in learning his ways and his precepts. We labor in prayer for others and in worship to God. We labor in every aspect of life. We labor because we are workers. Right now, right now, as you sit here, you're on the clock. You don't show up to your job and do everything you want to do and then carve out an hour or two to actually do your job. But isn't that the way we treat God? The work that, that he's given us? Most of our time on the clock is taken up by what we want to do. And we carve out little to no time for what God's called us to do. If you heard that your boss was coming to the office or school or precinct or garage or warehouse or store or wherever you work, you would make sure that you're on your P's and Q's that day, right? That you're doing your job. But God is ever present and ever vigilant. He's everywhere and he sees all. And knowing this, 
we're lax and we neglect our responsibilities in his presence. Do we revere our earthly employers more than the God of our salvation? How different would your life be if you embrace the truth that you are God's worker constantly on the clock? What would you do differently? What would you stop doing? So if God calls us to be workers and to work hard, and if Paul is drawing a contrast between those who embrace this truth and those who uh, teach different doctrine and promote speculation with their irreverent brabble, then these folks are idle. There's plenty of work to do, but they are sitting on their hands. And as the saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Think about it again, like a workplace, the gossip, the water cooler talk, the chatting with this and that person is all happening while work is being neglected. Pay attention to the employees who are constantly on the go and getting things done. They don't have any time to talk. They're so caught up in their work. Those who are caught up in everything else, the babblers, the quarrelers, they're not working. So do your best. Strive. To present yourself to God as one approved, a worker, God's worker, constantly on the clock, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, that word approved there, to present yourself uh, to God as one approved, that word approved just means accepted in the sense of genuine versus counterfeit money. So, for example, from a distance, uh, a real and a fake $100 bill look pretty much the same, right? But if you come closely and after a visual test, you can, you know, pretty tell, you pretty much tell like, that one's fake and one's phony. So what is the test that, that divides the Christian and the heretic? The Christian and the one who uh, promotes uh, speculation by, avoid, uh, by uh, irreverent babble and, and by calling of words. What's the test for that, right? That is in verse 15. Look in verse 15 with me. The last part of that says rightly handling the word of truth. That is the test that divides them. One rightly handles the word of truth. The other does not. This is what sets them apart. Now, this phrase simply means to teach the truth correctly and directly. In Greek, though, as in any language, there are certain expressions and idioms that when translated word for word into English, aren't really clear, so we replace those expressions with words or expressions that fit our context so that we can understand them. So, for example, you all know I'm Haitian, right? Yes, okay. So, um, a phrase that I grew up hearing a lot was, um, and I I believe the community group back in February, you guys should know this phrase as well, but the phrase is, bon dieu c'est grand moun, say that with me, bon dieu c'est grand moun, Okay, you almost got it. You're good. Okay. Okay. Now, if you translate that word for word, it means God is a grown up. He does what he wants. Right. But the idea there is that God is sovereign. He is all powerful and nothing can stop his plans. In the same way, the phrase rightly handling the word of truth is better translated to make straight and smooth the truth, 
to make straight and smooth the truth. I like that. I like that much better than rightly handling the truth. The imagery there just, just, just you know, makes it pop, right? The shortest distance between two points is a what? Straight line. When something is moving along with no impediments or bumps or hindrances, we say it's blank sailing, smooth sailing, right? When we share the word, we want to be direct. That's making it straight. That doesn't mean delivering it harshly, but it means to say that what it says, it means that we should say what it says. We want to give those we speak the shortest and straightest uh, line to the truth as possible. If we're not direct, we will be in danger of detouring those we speak to. We also need to be careful when we share the word of, of truth, the Bible, to make it smooth, which is to teach it correctly, right? If you've been a driver for any amount of time, chances are this has happened to you at some point. You're driving along and bam, pothole, right? That's what it's like when you share incorrect truth. It's like digging a pothole for someone, a car running right into a pothole. It's a stumbling block. So rightly teaching the word of truth is to teach it directly and correctly to make it straight and smooth. Now, in Paul's letters, he frequently warns the church to stand guard against the same thing he's telling Timothy to now. But he doesn't always point out the perpetrators, the false teachers, the heretics. But in this instance, he does. And in verse 17 and 18, Paul says, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. We don't really know too much about these two false teachers, other than the fact that Hymenaeus was mentioned only once before in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and for the same reason. And that this is the first and last time Philetus is written about in the entire Bible. There are 3,237 people explicitly mentioned in, by name in the Bible. When you think about it, that's not a lot considering the length of time, the number of events, and the different nations and people groups uh, that the Bible covers. So why these two? Why are these two there? I think it's because Paul is communicating to Timothy and to us the importance of calling out those who spread heretical falsehoods in the church. This one thing cannot be dealt with behind closed doors. If someone or a, a group is intentionally or actively preaching and teaching things that contradict scripture and undermine the gospel, they have to be called out and removed and Paul says of him and Ace in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20, hand it over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. False teachers have and will proclaim many different heretical teachings. Him and Ace and Philetus' brand of heresy was just happened to be that the resurrection had already occurred. Um, not the resurrection of Christ, but the resurrection of the people of God, of our resurrection. This is just flat out false because in John 6, verse 40, it says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Sometimes it's that easy to combat error. Just tell the truth. The problem is that many of us either don't know the truth 
or we're so unfamiliar with it that it, that we can't fight falsehood when we're confronted with it. And if we can't fight it, then we fall victim to it. And this is what Paul means when he says it ruins the hearers or that it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and that it is upsetting the faith of some. Even though it's worded differently in these different sections of the same passage, it all boils down to the same thing. Entertaining falsehood, error, ungodly or worldly speech. All of this will lead to more error, which leads to more sin, which eventually leads to death, spiritual death. Paul takes this warning even further and says that their talk will spread like gangrene. In verse 17. Now, if you're not familiar with gangrene, please have mercy on your stomach and your eyes. Do not Google it. I've done it for you, so I've taken that on for you. Don't don't do it, right? Please don't do it. I love you. I warned you. You're on your own. So, so I thought the best way to illustrate the severity of this condition is through a story I found of a man in India and his father's experience with gangrene. He says, what I am writing now is something even more horrible than what you might have read in one of Stephen King's scariest novels. I wonder when he wrote this. Um, my father, Mr. Ahmed, aged about 60 years old, had just a mild fever on December 10th, 2002. We took him to a doctor who diagnosed gangrene of the right big toe and suggested the name of a doctor who could treat him. So we took my dad there. He was admitted, but no proper treatment was done until December 19th, 2002. By this time, the gangrene had affected his entire right foot. The doctor misguided us and said it was okay and there was no need to panic, but by this time, we had inquired a little bit about the disease. When we asked the doctor for a clear diagnosis, he got annoyed and instead asked us to get a special medicine or a treatment. We searched everywhere but could not locate the drug. Eventually, my father's entire right leg was amputated above the knee. But even the doctor was not able to save his life, and my father died on January 26, 2003. What can we learn about gangrene from this terrible story? We see that it has small, seemingly harmless beginnings. The man said that his father started out with a slight fever. We see that gangrene spreads quickly. This man goes on to say that after only nine days, the gangrene has spread from his father's right big toe to his entire right foot. Lastly, we learn that it is deadly. Even after having his entire right leg amputated above the knee, the man's father died just six weeks after being diagnosed. This is how false doctrine works. It starts small. It spreads quickly and it causes death. The part of the story that I left out is what the man says after his father's death. He says, my advice to all is never delay the treatment of gangrene. It is very dangerous. Ask your doctor to act immediately. And this is the, and this is the key part. And cut the part affected as soon as possible. Paul calls us to guard against false doctrine. But if we come against it, we cannot delay removing it 
from among us. If the believer, the Christian, is called to make straight and smooth the word of truth, it's not a coincidence that Paul says this of Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 18. He says they have swerved from the truth. They've swerved from the truth. Isn't that the perfect imagery? When you're driving and something comes in your way, what do you do? You swerve to avoid it, right? These false teachers came across God's truth along their path and they swerved to avoid it. They maneuvered away from it. According to Wikipedia, Charles Taze Russell and some others formed a group in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to study the Bible in 1870. During the course of his ministry, Russell disputed many beliefs of mainstream Christianity, including immortality of the soul, hellfire, predestination, the fleshly return of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, and the burning up of the world. In June 1987, that's not right. In June, that's, that's that's not the same right date, but it's June maybe 1879. Yes, 1879, Russell began publishing the magazine Zion's Watchtower, and herald of Christ's presence. And a movement began. By 1910, about 50,000 people worldwide were associated with the movement. Today, it has over 8.4 million members. This is the story of the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is the fruit that comes from what Paul is warning Timothy about. In this passage, just like Hymenaeus and Philetus, They have swerved from the truth and their false doctrine takes root, bears fruit, and it multiplies. And it's not just them. Catholics and Roman Catholics have swerved from the truth. Seventh-day Adventists have swerved from the truth. Mormons have swerved from the truth. Christian science has swerved from the truth. Oneness Pentecostals have swerved from the truth. The Unification Church has swerved from the truth. And many Christian denominations have swerved from the truth. They have all played a part in, as it says in verse 18, upsetting or overturning the faith of some. Now, after saying all of this to Timothy about false teachers and heretics and avoiding irreverent babble and then capping it off with they are upsetting the faith of some. Paul's next statement will shift the focus from the work of the false teachers to the work of God. It will change the perspective from what we think is happening to what God is doing in the situation. As an example, here are some places in scripture where we see this. In Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is Joseph talking to his brothers after they sold him into slavery years before, and now they've been reunited. The work of his brothers was evil, but the work of God was for Joseph to be the means by which many lives were spared and saved. In Acts 4, verse 27 to 28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Herod, 
Pontius Pilate, the chief priest, all of them played an active role in Jesus' death. That's what we see. But what God knows is that they were doing what his plan had predestined to take place. Verses 18 and 19 of our passage says, they are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I'm sorry, is there like a tissue here somewhere? Because my nose is, you know, it's really, you got, okay, thank you. Um, what the Ephesian church sees is the overturning of people's faith at the hands of false doctrine. What we see is a spreading of error. What we see is Christian cults gaining traction and momentum. What we see are people who once called themselves Christians turning to Buddhism or Islam. Thank you. Thanks. I, I still need that one. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, just, it's waterworks up here. Sorry. We see people who once called themselves Christians turning to Buddhism or Islam or other religions. God sees all of this and says, the Lord knows who's those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. God has a people of his own. And false doctrine, error, heresy, and blasphemous teachings won't turn them away from him. Those who are drawn away by false teaching and embrace it with their minds and hearts and undermine the gospel are not God's people. Jesus explains this very clearly in John 10, verse 27 to 29, when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. God's children cannot be drawn away by false teaching, irreverent babble and quarreling of words. They are secure in the father's hand. They only hear the voice of Jesus. They don't hear the voice of the enemy. Think of how encouraging this must be to Timothy. The two false teachers Paul mentions here aren't the first and they won't be the last that come against the church at Ephesus. The attacks will continue against this church. Paul is urging Timothy to preach and teach the word directly and correctly so that the church learns and knows the truth. Even though Timothy will do all of this and he'll be faithful in teaching certain members of the church are still drawn away. He may wonder or think to himself, what am I doing wrong? Or maybe I should do more. But God is saying, those who were drawn away are not my children. They didn't leave because of anything you did. They left because of who they are, or better yet, who they are not. 1 John 2.19 says it like this. They went out from us, but they were not of us for if they had been of us, they would not, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. What's the difference between they and us here? 
They are unsaved. Us are saved. They are children of God. Us, I'm sorry, flip that. <laughs> they are the children of Satan. Us are the children of God. They receive justice. Us receives grace. They will spend eternity separated from God in utter darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Us will spend eternity in heaven with Christ at the right hand of God, praising him forever and ever. The biggest difference between they and us, the reason for the difference is this. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In him, in God, we have obtained an inheritance in Christ through predestination. Those who come to saving faith in Christ were predestined to do so. That means even before they were born, even before the world came into existence, God decided to make them his own to save them. Why? Because bon Dieu He does what he desired to do. The Lord knows those who are his because he predestined them. He chose them to be his children. Now there's more to it than that though. Now, we, we don't get a chance to uh, know all of God's will. He doesn't reveal everything to us, but he's chosen to reveal some of it, right? And part of that is the last part of verse 19, which says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this idea can more clearly be seen in Ephesians 1, verse 4. And it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, the Lord knows those who are his, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So not only has God chosen us or chosen those who are his, but he calls them to depart from iniquity. That is part of his will. He calls them to be holy and blameless before him. Now, how can we do that? We're all born in sin. We're all born hating God. We're all born with our uh, backs to God. We're dead in our sins. Do dead people walk? No. Can dead people talk? No. Can dead people see? No. So it is God that has to initiate that, to open our eyes, to see that, to see him. But still, he calls us to be holy and blameless. If we're sinful, how do we get to that part? If we're on this side of the bridge... We're sinful. We're dead in our sin. How do we get to this side of the bridge? 
to where we are holy and blameless through Christ. Christ is that bridge. Jesus takes on our sin in his death on the cross. And he gives us, he imputes his righteousness to us. And God sees us as holy and blameless through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So for you, Christian, believer, always be reminded of this truth. Of all the things that are in this particular passage here, right, the the quarreling of words, the irreverent babble, Paul calling Timothy to uh, present himself uh, to God as one approved, the worker uh, who needs to be not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. All of these things boil down to the truth in verse 19. The Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There's hope in that. You may have friends, you may have family members who you know are caught in the pangs of error or false truth or false teaching. You may, you yourself may have been uh, a part of one of the groups or that I mentioned. Or you may be a worshiper of your own self, right? What that means is pretty much I'm going to do what I want to do, right? That means you're worshiping yourself. I'm the God of my life. But God says the Lord knows those who are his. If, if, you, if there are people that you know in your life that are holding on to false teachings, keep praying for them because the Lord knows those who are his. There is hope. We don't know that, unfortunately, or fortunately. But the Lord knows those who are his. And for you, unbeliever, I pray that there's always something there to remind you of God, of Christ and his work. He's booby-trapped life for it to be that way. When you wake up and you take a breath, reminder. When you walk out of your door, you drive your car, you ride your bike, you go about life, reminder. And I pray that this sermon, this word, not my words, this word of the Bible is a reminder to you and that you would surrender your life to Christ, that you would look to him. And I pray that you always, always take heed of the reminder of God that he has set before you. Let us pray. Father God, I... Thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray for all the people here, Lord. I pray for the believers here, God, that um, may have been growing stagnant, God, in their faith, like we all do. And I pray that this word can encourage them, encourage me, encourage us, Father, to know that we are your workers that we are constantly on the clock for you, God, that there's always something that we can do. Let us not mistake that for legalism, but let us tirelessly just work for you, God. And for those, Lord, who do not know you, God, I pray that you can uh, empower us through your Holy Spirit to speak to them, words to them, to remind them of their need for you. 
and to remind them, Lord Father God, that they are lost without you, that there is no other way to eternal life but through Christ. God, I pray for this church that we may be constantly reminded of Christ and that we can serve one another and that we can um, die to ourselves and our desires for your sake and for your glory. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.